Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode nine of Inside Weekly Trends with your friends, Brian and Landon. Brian, how's your week going so far? Hey, it's going all right. I feel like we need a thermometer in the backdrop of these videos to explain how cold it is right now in the middle of crypto winter, which we're yep. about to talk about soon. Yep, yep. The um, winter is cold. here. <laughs> yeah, winter's here. Break out your Night King gifs because it's it's pretty cold. I, I was going back today in the newsfeed and seeing uh, references to this, people predicting this was coming in January, you know, and they, they look a lot more prescient now, but uh, it's it's a bad place for crypto. It's a bad it place is. for equities. It's a bad place for the S&P 500. It's a bad place for growth stocks in particular. But uh, what have you seen this week? What tell Explain to everybody what characterizes the conditions we're in. in of this course. Well, the first thing is I've been seeing... I've been seeing a lot less uh, NFT profile pics on Twitter. Yep. <laughs> so, the hype, um, yeah, the hype I, beasts I, are not out in in big numbers right now. Yeah. Um, so weekly NFT sales down by more than a half. Uh, we covered that on our website at inside.com. Um, I know, Brian, we spend a lot of time on Twitter. I mean, it pretty much seems like everything's on fire. Um, you know, literally a lot of people are losing money um, in the rent. NFT and crypto space. Um uh, how are you treating it? Do you have, um, and of course, again, this is not investment advice for anybody listening, but uh, for your crypto portfolio, if you hold any, how are you kind of feeling about all this? Yeah, I don't look at it. And I mean, I don't have a really large portfolio, actually. Um, I, I I do have some Coinbase. I should say that up front in my portfolio. And I have you know a small amount and a few different coins, which I, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't call significant, but you know, it's just kind of there to watch and see how things are going. Yep. Uh, don't look at. It. I treat it. I treat it like any you know major investment. You got to treat things as long term if you're getting into it. Of course. Um, and you briefly just but, brought up Coinbase. Uh, we saw some big no- news from Coinbase that we can yeah. probably touch on um, during the show as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a bad week for them. They're going through a rough spot, and I think this is uh, like you're going to see with everything. This is going to be a big test. This is where you test and see what's actually built to last in the entire crypto ecosystem right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a disappointing earnings report. And on top of all that, you know, crypto prices and Bitcoin are falling all over the place. And then then there was this Tuesday SEC filing where there was a quote that said, crypto assets we hold in custody on behalf of our customers could be subject to bankruptcy proceedings, which means potentially uh, you could lose something you hold, I guess, is is what people are interpreting from this. And I mean, this is the nature of having a custodial wallet. We think people should understand before they decide where to to place tokens, coins they hold. Uh, uh, people, I think there's been a panic to that. And I, I was asking you this. I mean, do you think people just didn't really understand this, and this that's why this is getting reacted to, or how big of a deal do you think this is in the whole? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a big space. deal, and we've been stressing this on the show since the beginning. You know, um, directly related to crypto. If you're going to put your money anywhere, you need to probably know uh, where you're putting it. Um, and you know the risks um, that entail with that as well. Um, I think mm-hmm. this is going to be a big wake-up call for a lot of people, not just the Coinbase news, but overall. I mean, just a lot of these crypto projects or uh, investments losing a lot of money fast. Um, individuals mm-hmm. are going to be upset and probably pay a little more closer attention about um, you know where they're putting their assets. But um, mm-hmm. in the bigger you know meta scale of this, I think that um, meta, no pun intended. I think that if we think back to 2000 um, and look at also the recession in 2008. Obviously, there's a lot of negativity uh, surrounding mm-hmm. those times. But, you know, as you just alluded to, Brian, the companies that survived, you know, ended up really um, impacting a lot uh, for society. The Amazons, the 
even, you know, Airbnbs thinking about 2008, um, which we're going to be touching on a little later. So I think yep. um, as you just mentioned, Brian, we're going to see a lot of companies that survive this come out even stronger. Um, but there will be a whole lot of projects um, and companies that um, just don't and don't need to be around and probably won't yep. um, continue to deliver value. And that's what we're going to find out more about. Yeah, I mean, this was so strong that uh, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong went on Twitter and announced mm-hmm. that there was, quote unquote, no risk of bankruptcy soon. Um, they, have, they have a lot of cash on hand and uh, we'll, see, you know, we'll see how this plays out. But it's they are at the center of this storm right now because they have you know connections to all these different tokens that are traded on there, all these different coins that are traded on there. So um something to keep an eye on and we'll see how things play out. I mean, we've seen flash crashes, we've seen crashes in financial industry, we've seen crashes in the auto industry uh, in the past. Now we're looking at one of those in crypto and it's worth saying that you know, Bitcoin has crashed before. Yeah, it's really hard to characterize these things in the heat of the, the downturn. So, uh, you know, different things can happen. So keep an eye out. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, so next point on our list, uh, we want to talk briefly about um, Google I.O., correct? Yeah, sure. Let's go through some of the announcements. Google had it is having its I.O. conference this week. So there's a lot of announcements happening. Uh, there was uh, a little uh, tease about this Google Glass successor that actually looks like a pair of glasses. And they look interesting. sleek. Yeah. They, you know, they're, they're neat. It's funny. They're, they're definitely characterizing the utility of these things because i know they're they probably are still reticent to make a big consumer push after mm-hmm. seeing how the first google glass launch turned out but <laughs> i will say that the, time. it was before it's yeah, time yeah well, well i don't know maybe people are more open to having cameras on people's glasses as they're walking around the yeah. streets now in the age of uh, snapchat tested that and the snap goggles got out there uh and maybe we're a little bit better but those were also a little bit more specialized in terms of purpose uh, I, I really love the translation capability yes. that was was demo. I mean, they had they actually had a version of this in the first Google Glass set, and I tried it out, and it was really neat being able to see text in Italian and in oh, real time tried them rendered. On? I actually no, I actually had a pair of Google Glass. Oh wow! Uh, uh, back in you know back back when they first came out, and I, I eventually sold it. Uh, it was funny how much value it maintained actually when I, I think I sold it to somebody who had a startup and was looking to use it within their you know their office um, and that was kind of cool but uh, yeah it would actually render text in English that you were seeing in Italian it was limited wow. in terms of the number in terms of the number of languages that it would work with but uh, you know it's it's a it's it's really it feels like magic uh, if the, if you if they get the experience right and are able to build on what they already had, which I'm I'm absolutely sure they have. I haven't tested any of this technology since, but uh, you know, and they they also announced uh, that uh, Google Translate is going to support a bunch of new languages. They uh, let's go down the list too. They they announced uh, the new uh, Pixel Six A phone. Mm-hmm. New they showed off the new watch. New earbuds coming out. Uh, I I thought this was interesting. This will get into one of the topics we touched on this week in events, which was ethical AI. Uh, you know, they they announced the refreshing the uh, skin tone scale that their AI infrastructure references. Did you read about this? I didn't get a chance to check that out. Um, yeah, so they're um, they're moving from the six tone Fitzpatrick scale to a ten tone. It's called the Monk scale. Wow! And it's intended to be able to give a more diverse 
reference set for the AI in terms of, you know, how people's skin actually looks and sure. uh, yeah, right. And this is obviously a problem with a lot of AI that's developed by people who are primarily white male of a certain age set. Even uh, the more you're focused on producing AI from a certain perspective without incorporating different reference points, the less effective it is at being useful for a larger population. And you know this this gets into ethics when you're talking about you know facial recognition and you know I think there've been problems with fast facial recognition not recognizing you know uh, people of Asian descent it's 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 tough um, but you need to intentionally get this stuff right so I I, I applaud this move it it seems like a, a move in the right direction to help the AI to be um, useful and more relevant to a, a larger mm. audience right. I'm looking at the scale right now. Um, so again, yeah. going from the Fitzpatrick, which only had six uh, skin mm -hmm. tones, now the Monk at 10. Um, I think this is great. Classic Google, you know, really leading the way. Um, uh, you would hope. Yeah, you would hope. I mean, because they, they've had a lot of criticism in the past few years. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's great to see moves being made that try to accommodate that people look different and are different. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Brian, let's talk yeah. briefly about Instacart. Um, another big oh my gosh, them. this yeah, is yeah. Listeners may remember thing. we were talking about these delivery apps a few weeks yep. ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, if anybody did not see, uh, they are potentially looking towards an IPO. Um, Bloomberg did announce though um, that this is this news is following a forty percent drop in their valuation. Um, right. And yeah, so as Brian mentioned, we covered um, delivery apps in companies on the show a few weeks ago. Um, mm -hmm. Brian, we've been seeing a lot of um, you know pain in the market. Do you think this is poor timing for Instacart or do you think they're trying to um, get the bag when they can still get it? You can answer that question from a few different directions, right? Because uh, you know, I think stepping back, it looks like a terrible time in the market. It looks like <laughs> a terrible time in the as far as valuations of delivery apps go, you know, uh, Jigney, uh, who writes our e inside e-commerce newsletter every day was on, uh, please look for him on our YouTube channel. You'll find his little talk that he gave about the state of delivery apps right now. It's a tough time. Uh, valuations are way down. Runways are shortening and some companies are calling it quits. So from one perspective, you have to understand there's, you know, there are investors who want an exit right? And there's probably pressure for an exit right now. And if this is their path to that, some people are probably willing to just take what they can get if they don't see a much larger possibility on the horizon soon. I don't know. But it looks like, you know, probably a bad time in the larger context, but it might be the right time for some people if they've scaled down their hopes of how much they're going to get in terms of returns on their investment in this company. I don't know. Of course. No, great points right. there. Um, I think timing is everything. And although, you know, the market's looking very bad for a lot of companies, I mean, they might think that this is the best timing for them um, because at this point, you know, things can only get worse. Uh, Brian, I know this wasn't on the list of things that we went to cover, but um, if you're familiar, I'd love to talk briefly about Peloton, um, mm -hmm. which also posted a heavy quarterly loss uh, for the first quarter, um, indicating that they have a lot to work, a lot, a lot of work to be do, um, doing on their sure. side. Um, you know, obviously there was so much hype in the beginning of the pandemic, if you remember those days with Peloton. Um, sure. What do you think led to this? Do you think people are just kind of looking at this company right now and saying, okay, you know, maybe not worth the true value, which we thought it all was. Um, well, and and Peloton is in, is in, Peloton's in what, like Act 3, I don't know, but maybe, act, maybe we're only in Act 2 or the end of Act 1 of their fall, right? Because they had this problem with too much supply and not enough demand at the end of last year. Yep. And you know, they've been gradually taking down the prices of these bikes. 
and they cut 20 percent of their workforce yeah this all yeah. cut 20 percent of the workforce they, this also falls into this larger story of stocks that benefited during pandemic lockdowns and people doing a lot more at home this was yep. sort of the ideal play in that period of time because people wanted to exercise but they were afraid to get out close to other people so this was you know a baked in subscription hardware offering that really met those needs now we're coming out of the the lockdown era, the pandemic, and behavior, consumer behavior might not be the same. People might be going back to gyms and That's a great not point. thinking of this as their first option anymore in some cases. So they've got to adjust to that. And they've also just got to adjust to the negative momentum that they've been uh, dealing with for the past few months anyway. Yeah. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, all these companies that performed very well during the pandemic because people were stuck inside. Um, you know, let's pay close attention to how they're going to perform once people are out. And we can talk mm-hmm. briefly about a company um, that wants to get people out of their houses. <laughs> Airbnb uh, made some big announcements this week uh, for their app redesign. Um, mm-hmm. Brian Chesney, um, the CEO of Airbnb, called this the biggest change in over a decade. Yeah. Keep in mind that this company has been around since 2008. Um, you know, years, years and later, they're coming out with some very unique app designs, um, redesigns, I should say. Yeah, um, what stuck rare. out to you about this? What are you excited to try? Yeah, so the first thing that I really uh, am excited to try myself, um, because I am an Airbnb power user, I guess you could say, um, is categories. So you can actually find places based on categories. So if you want to categorize it by camping, it'll show you all the places uh, nearby or you know even abroad um, that you could camp at. Um, they have, I believe it's not called a weird category but it's like a funky category where all these places are like very unique um and fun places uh, to stay at i believe there's like a abandoned jet in the middle of a forest and a lot of other fun examples i haven't seen Uh, the jet yet yeah yeah so that one was mentioned um in the keynote you could say that Mm -hmm. brian gave but yeah i'm really excited to try that out um because yeah i think when it comes to finding unique places uh categorizing only made sense and this is something I really respect about Brian Ches, um, Chesney. Like he takes a lot of um, you know ideas from what he sees on Twitter, people talking about. I know that he tweeted out like last year, hey, we want to make some updates to Airbnb. If you guys have any ideas, let us know. And it turned to this long thread. And that category um, point was made in the thread by a user. So I think that that was really cool. Um, and the split stays as well. Um, allowing people to stay uh, but at two or more different homes uh, for the length of a however you want your Airbnb to be. So two really cool yeah. changes. It, it seems like some changes that are going to be really accommodating to this era of remote work. Totally. And potential like nomad behavior that I think they're anticipating right now, post-pandemic, right? And that they're trying to model with their own their own staff as far as this work from anywhere policy. So totally. yeah, very neat. Yeah. And cool that he's, he's working with Johnny Ive on this of, yep. of Apple fame. I caught that in the news from The Verge, right? Uh, yeah, it, we'll see what happens. It's a big step. I know they announced it. I, I some people might have been surprised that it was only a product update, but it's a it's a very thoughtful take, I think, on on where they're going. It is. All right. Uh, should we dive into the uh, events that we had this past week? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We had some wonderful events this week. I believe the first one we want to talk about um, is from our Giving Voice and Intelligence, the Digital Characters event. Uh, this is all focused on AI. We had David Colleen, who's the CEO and chairman of Sapient X. He spoke with our very own Stephanie and Dr. Dan Smith um, mm-hmm. from the Inside Team. And um, yeah, you want to kind of intro this clip a little bit and uh, talk about what we're going to be able to see in this? 
Yeah, so he was talking about uh, the avatars that they create and the, the virtual experiences that they create and giving voices and types of intelligence to these you know full characters, essentially. And I think this is where I, we were talking about earlier about ethical AI in the news this week. Uh, he he really believes in this idea that you can offer something to users that is quote unquote white hat. Um, versus black hats. Let, let, let's listen to that clip about how he characterized this. Well, we came out of the, the hacker community in San Francisco, and it was a very giving, nurturing community uh, that uh, had strong ethics in, in general. I think that was kind of our our early background and and how we saw the, the world that uh, that we can build products that make money. But at the same time, do things in a way that we consider the, the, the right or ethical way, including not doing things like collecting user data and selling it. Uh, we can build perfectly good business models around the ethical consideration of the use of AI without ever um, creating Skynet or, or creating AI systems that uh, that that abuse the trust that we develop with the people who use these voice systems as interfaces. And uh, in hacker culture, that means wearing the white hat. And we think there's a lot of people out there wearing the black hat right now. Okay, what uh, I, I really appreciate how thoughtful he is about this. He, you know, of course, white, white hat versus black, black hat tends to be used in hacker terminology a lot mm -hmm. as well as programming right but oh, you know white hat is having good intention and being transparent about what you do black hat is being deceptive and working for an outcome that the end user might not be aware of or using mm -hmm. technology for unethical means perhaps and he really believes that you can do that and to me that's sort of the vibe of a lot of web three aspiration and just more transparency new generation of internet companies in general but I, it specifically applies to ai when you're talking about development uh, in ways that's transparent gives users control over what kind of data they're transacting with in terms of giving up or allowing a company to see and how the company gets to use it uh, and helping people understand that and that can be a difficult task just uh, at any level to understand what do you need to communicate to a user and how do they understand how to use something that is a very complex you know piece of software so uh, you know it, it's a great aspiration and uh, you hope you'd hope to see more of this i think from companies totally agree because uh, use, use data to play ai yeah. yeah i agree because this wasn't something that on the um, subject of transparency that we saw during the web 2 era so hopefully things like mm -hmm. ai and as we go into this yeah. web 3 um, after this cold, cold winter, um, more, I think hopefully we can see more transparency. Right. Uh, let's get into your venturing in VC episode that you had this week. Tell us who you had on. Uh, if, yes. To remind everybody, Landon has his own other podcast through inside, uh, called venturing in VC every week that you can catch on inside.com too. Yep, yeah. Yeah. So we had on, uh, Nick Talreja, um, as you guys know, on venturing VC, we have influential venture capitalists mm -hmm. every week. Uh, Nick is a VC himself. He's a co-founder of 18 ventures, a fund that invests, um, in companies with a significant nexus to Israel. But, um, what he focuses on mainly is his company called sidecar, uh, which is literally an on-ramp into VC. They're a deal execution platform for potential alloc uh, capital allocators, uh, emerging fund managers, 
um, built by veterans from Carta, AngelList, um, and Crunchbase. So overall, again, this being an on-ramp to VC, he wants to see more venture capitalists in the space, and he used this unique uh, wording. He wants to um, see more of a decentralized uh, VC compared to what it is today. Um, and that was a uh, source from him after I asked him, you know, if he, if he thinks everybody or anyone could be a VC. So let's play the clip so you guys can hear a little bit more about what he's building at Sidecar. I do think that anybody can be a VC. I think it, I think all of us are capable of building that passion for a future state of the world that we want to make a reality by either building toward it directly, working for a company that builds toward it or by funding those opportunities that we think can take us forward as, as, as you know, just in general, as, as a global population. And, and I think it behooves us all to think about getting involved in that, either as an investor or by leading deals. And I think that's what the future of VC looks like. It looks a lot more decentralized than it does today. It's, it's going to be one where you are a VC, I'm a VC, we all can be VCs, and we can all share our deals with our communities um, and share what we're, you know, why we're uniquely positioned to help lead those companies forward to be a part of that, that journey. Okay, we can bring it back. Um, yeah, having Nick on the show is super important to me because the whole point of entering VC is to show people, you know, unique journeys. There's no one way to break into VC. And I hope that we eventually live in a world where we don't even have to consider it breaking into VC. I really believe that anybody should be able to invest capital um, and help support um, and fa um, fund founders. And this is something that Nick also really believes, uh, which is why it's important to see resources, products being built to help more people get into the space. Um, Brian, what did you think of our conversation? Do you kind of agree that that's uh, his thesis for creating Sidecar? Yeah, I mean, it sounds right. I, I, I'm curious to hear more what you think about this idea of decentralization and how we'll, how we'll see an impact from that trend, right? Like, what, what is that going to do to investment going forward? Allowing just more people to be able to invest? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so, what types of investors is, are going to immediately benefit from that? And what does it do in the long term? Of course, I think just like having different perspectives on cap tables could be really helpful. Um, yeah. For so long, you know, we kind of just had this one idea of this is what a VC needs to look like. And mm -hmm. through the past, um, you know, few years, I think that that's really evolved. More people yeah. are getting into the space. But as we move, you know, more and more into the future. I, just to put a plug in there, I think that's something we hope to put on display at Meet Our Fund 3. Exactly. Yep. A couple yeah, of yeah, weeks which we should plug is that because coming that's up, May baked into the premise of Meet Our Fund. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so make sure to sign up for Meet Our Fund if you guys have not. Um, details are on our website, inside.com slash events. This is our two-day bread and butter event. Super excited for it. Featuring over 20 VCs to talk about their unique journeys into the space um, and what they look for in founders. But um, yeah, no, I'm really, really impressed with what Nick has built at Sidecar. Um, I mentioned that, you know, he has his own fund, 18 Ventures. So a lot of the difficulties of getting into the space himself, he's built into this um, program and application. So everybody can check out Sidecar at sidecar.io. And that is Sidecar with a Y. Today, we're happy to have on Courtney Rawlings, who is our writer every day for Inside XR. Uh, Courtney's going to come on and talk today about the advent of digital twin technologies and who's using them, what they're being used for, and what people are trying to achieve. So uh, let me welcome to the stage without further ado, Courtney. 
Welcome to the podcast. Thank How's it going? you. It's so nice to be Good. here. Good to have um, you on. So why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about where digital twin technology intersects with XR and why you've been watching it in the newsletter lately. Yeah, digital twins really captured my imagination, like first thing writing the newsletter, largely because it kind of combines everything that we associate with extended reality um, and makes it like like immediately recognizable as like this useful everyday tool that will probably transform our lives. So as a quick definition mm -hmm. um, that I made up, so, you know, it, it could be <laughs> you know, developed more um, is like, it kind of takes any kind of immersive tech that recreates the physical world virtually, um, but not like, so often using VR headsets, sometimes using something like a smart glasses, but also mm -hmm. anything that's like a fly through technology, um, uh, there can be immersive screens, holograms, all of these things kind of fall under um, this lar this like bigger definition of digital twins. And um, they require an enormous amount of storage. So it's largely going to be cloud software platforms that are developing these twins right now, but they're used across industries already. So they're being introduced into the car manufacturing industry. Of course, they're in content creation with things like avatars in the metaverse and uh, most recently um, teaching. So it's going to be mm -hmm. a huge part of like kind of the medical um, industry in the- Well, take a step back for a second. I think before we walk into the use cases, right? So the, the idea of this digital twin thing is that you have a real life component. We have a real life, what the twins consist of a real life object person or point of reference and a virtual point of reference right. that in some way mirrors the other, right? That's yeah, what we're talking about when we talk about Typically, I mean, they twins. can be synchronous or asynchronous yeah, uh, as far go. as like how it plays out, but mm -hmm. um, it's always to do with some referent in the world uh, that the vi virtual object is always referring to, right? So, so it's how people can be. Or so yeah. I was just asking, it starts as a physical and then it goes to virtual, or have we seen any examples where maybe a digital twin starts as a virtual um, and then goes into a physical product? Right now it's mostly objects in the real world to physical mm -hmm. but as like okay so just to give a quick example to for your question so right now bmw is using or is growing especially in their um, in germany they're kind of experimenting with digital twin technology where uh logistics people can watch the car being developed in real time okay and you can anticipate right in the future maybe those logistics people or developers or whoever intervening on the development of the car via the digital twin right Intr instructing uh the you know warehouse workers etc oh actually let's not do that paint let's do x y and z or i don't know I, so I, presume, presume you, can take, you can make a, take a real-time action into the manufacturing process however real-time that can possibly be in a manufacturing process as complex as automobiles i guess but uh nonetheless intervene in the manufacturing process based on the virtual twin to alter what the output is for the physical twin in that case. Exactly. And that's, yeah. all, I mean, it's interesting because it's like, uh, it's not unidirectional, right? Like mm -hmm. the technology right now seems unidirectional, but for instance, I'm covering today in the newsletter, um, mm -hmm. a company whose smart glasses will be worn by factory workers. And as those factory workers are kind of moving through, uh, you know, their everyday activities, logistics uh, managers and workers can, you know, be like, actually, no, let's do a quick change. So you're you're 
communicating with people in real time in a real physical place. And that's via glasses. I know, Brian, you had an example of um, drones in this factory that kind of live kind of yeah. almost like live stream uh, the event of manufacturing, right? And then you can have kind of real-time interventions into the factory. And this is especially important, you know, right now as we have, you know, wild supply chain shortages. There's always these, I was just at Rite Aid and was walking down, um, you know, the aisles of Rite Aid completely empty okay i was shocked i was like are you guys closing no they're not closing it's just completely empty because of the supply chain shortages so yeah. places like manufacturers and factories um or any fulfillment centers are going to be using this technology as within the next year interesting we're already on yeah. <laughs> right. let's talk well, about so the medical field yeah. a little bit um because yeah. you mentioned that that's a field that really you see personal potential in um, are there any medical companies that are experimenting with digital twins right now? Or what do you kind of see uh, coming from that? Also today, I am covering Baltimore University of and is, is partnering with the University of Michigan with funds from the U.S. federal government and the FDA to develop new technologies using VR digital twins um, for a variety of medical uses. So one that's already underway is, of course, in education. So medical students, nursing students largely throughout the country are using VR headsets to en engage in simulations. Now, those simulations are going to become more and more lifelike. There are these are simulations of cadavers or these simulations of, of cadavers, body, body of systems, yeah. body parts, of mm -hmm. even just interacting with patients. So, mm -hmm. of course, that's not technically a digital twin. That's a simulation. Yeah, but that yeah. simula like, simulation environment is being transformed rapidly into becoming something like more like a digital twin. So in a few uh, drug companies, for instance, are using kind of blind clinical trials, right? So and making them even more blind. Okay, so you can take like an entire person's history of like medical history, her um, her weight, her height, her every time she's ever gone to the doctor, every drug she's ever taken, put that into a uh, a system that recreates that person without any kind of node of reference to her literal being, right? So it allows you can for, anonymize the person's body and exactly anonymize the person and her body while still yeah. being able to kind of predict um, what's going to happen if she took X, Y, and Z, if she had you know uh, Y surgery, um, etc. It's sort of the ultimate anonymized user data at that point if you're taking the person's full body or, you know, a scan or representation of it and then disassociating it from the identity. That's fascinating. I think that's really where this is moving. And then, if, mm. I mean, education is critical and, and like combining the kind of simulation effects of VR with real world objects, real hearts, et cetera, you can mm. do things or what they're experiencing with at Baltimore, for instance, is like, okay, mm. if we gave this guy a heart surgery, okay, uh, let's have a digital twin of his heart, his background, et cetera, and see, okay, let's simulate that on this twin object and see what happens. Uh, because of course, everybody is different. I think it's just really important uh, innovation for the medical industry and might also, a lot of people hope, speed up things like, you know, having drugs get their patents and move forward in the process and stuff like that. Uh, as far as education, do you see this having applications outside of medicine? Uh, I know it's a use case you bring up, but how, how widely relevant is this to, I know, other fields as far well, as training there, and education go? 
Um, okay, I covered a few weeks ago this yeah. phenomenon that I had no idea was going on called yeah. metaverses. And it's mm -hmm. people using, you'll never word. believe it, meta head headsets to yeah. attend class in virtual twins of their classroom. So here we're, we've mm -hmm. moved away from persons necessarily to architectural spaces or from mm -hmm. objects to architectural spaces. So the twin, you know, I guess you could say an avatar is a kind of twin, but not necessarily. But let's say your avatar enters an actual digital twin in real time of the classroom. So you can hear lectures in real time. You can interact kind of. They're working this out in real time. Um, and that's helpful, of course, following COVID-19 with how allowing, you know, uh, people who are feeling ill, who are nervous about getting sick, but also, you know, new moms, new parents um, who still want to attend class from home. Um, and those are like, I think University of South Dakota was the most recent announcement. There are also places like Morehouse. Um, a lot of smaller universities have been getting huge grants from Meta um, to invest in their VR tech and headsets. It makes a lot of sense. More power for the Zuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have enough. Um, like, and I, I guess like to me, I think the most exciting part is not necessarily attending a lecture, but more on the, like the nursing school side, which I'm mm -hmm. sure will be introduced more broadly to undergraduate institutions across the country, which is having this almost physical tactile experience with something like, you know, a heart without having to dissect <laughs> anyone, without having yeah. to engage with a cadaver, but still having a very real, um, uh, like, uh, singular experience right because it's a twin mm. of an object in the world not necessarily just the idea of an object uh, mm -hmm. recreated yeah it's an interesting opportunity to be able to not depend so much on physical specimens to have to be operated on i'm assuming that doctors and people graduating through uh schools of medicine still need to have those at some point but to what you're saying it makes it possible to have more learning activity going on even in remote locations without having you know physical cadavers or specimens in front of yeah, you. Yeah, right? it's definitely for like intro level for I think like the nursing schools for instance their number one thing that they why they're so excited about the technology is because it mm -hmm. allows for new nursing students to feel more comfortable before they have mm -hmm. start their first day on the job, right? So you've yeah. already practiced engaging with patients, diagnosing yeah. certain kind of like simple um, illnesses in these simulations. And so when you, mm -hmm. when you turn that into real life, it's, you know, you're, you feel like an expert already. And then the real, I mean, in the medical field, unlike the educational one, so like, divide those a little bit is, you know, what you can do as far as like running tests, like I was talking about earlier, as far as like running drug tests, simulating surgeries on real people. That's really the, where the innovation comes for um, medical. I see. Uh, now, what about uh, promotion in sports, retail, uh, I don't know, just online social platforms or what other use yeah cases? this is okay we so we started with the most unrelatable okay right so yeah. not all of us are going to manufacturing and not all of us are going to be doctors but the digital twin technology is like is happening now in our real um lives as far as like as acting as consumers or acting as visitors to new spaces so one plan is this company who's working with the Paris Olympics, and they what they've done is they've recreated um, the stadium, the Paris Olympic Stadium, um, so that they can measure 
they can simulate and measure, but in a real physical twin or mm -hmm. like a not, I, <laughs> that's confusing, a virtual twin, um, mm -hmm. you know, ingress and egress, they can measure like, okay, so where best should we place the exits and entrances? Um, mm -hmm. Where should the, you know, um, booths for purchasing merch go? Like, you know, given the stats that we've, we've run, if there's 100,000 people, how many seats do we need, et cetera, et cetera. So that's happening right now um, for the upcoming Paris Olympics, but also oh. in places like museums. Um, my favorite example is a Christie's Degas sculpture is on sale at Christie's. And what they did instead of, you know, traveling the actual sculpture is they've introduced a interactive hologram um, that is a perfect twin of the sculpture, right? So you can... Oh, wow ship the twin around without you know risking damage to the physical what, what does the output and experience of that twin look like is it somebody you're putting are you putting on a headset to view that is it a it displayable is hologram by displayable and oh, it's wow. like it's kind of a difficult to explain hmm. but it you can tell that it's a screen there is a screen but there is a tactile and um it's a 3D capable screen that you can move around. You get a sense of the scale and height. Um, and I guess most importantly, you're, you can touch in a, you know, currently a, only a 2D like tactile mm -hmm. experience, but still touch and maneuver the object. Um, that's not oh. to say that holograms aren't also being used in mm -hmm. other museum settings, such as the Holocaust Museum in Illinois is using holograms um, that you access just as like, you know, like we saw in Star Wars, like physical mm -hmm. holograms, even better, uh, of people talking and telling you about their experience surviving the Holocaust wow. or putting on VR headsets and traveling to Auschwitz with survivors who are twins in this environment um, to walk you through what they experienced. That sounds really powerful. Yeah, it's definitely um, like a new way to engage people uh, across the country, especially in museum settings and art settings, and mm -hmm. give them a more firsthand experience, kind of like what we saw in the medical field. But I mm -hmm. think probably the most, um, two of the most interesting, like, you know, upcoming current events in digital twin technology is how it's being integrated into the metaverse um, come omniverse settings. So um, there, Navita is, um, just realized I've never said that out loud. Why don't you, why don't you and, say what you mean by when you say omniverse versus metaverse for a second for um, people listening who might not know? Well, how could they? I mean, I, you know, just kidding. So metaverse is purely virtual, right? So when we mm -hmm. talk about a metaverse, we're talking about a purely virtual space wherein what is input stays input, right? So mm -hmm. NFTs are a great example of like you own this virtual object. It might have real world repercussions, but it for all intents and purposes is virtual. Um, whereas an omniverse kind of scales um, uh, virtual and real. It is up to date. Let's say it's um, uh, in time. It engages yeah. both digital twin technologies and their relationship to the physical world. So an omniverse is definitely the next step past metaverse, which is more of a gamified version of reality where the omniverse kind of contract reality in a virtual space. I, well, I hope that, yeah. if that was clear. I know that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I, we, we're getting a little bit short on time. I wonder if you could maybe touch on where the technology is at right now. What do you think uh, is on the horizon? Where will, where should people expect to encounter digital twins first in their lives if they haven't already? 
Yeah, I think the first place you're going to experience them is on your cell phone. Um, mm. Right now, tons of companies are experimenting with using 3D um, uh, uh, technology to advertise physical objects somewhere else, right? So yeah. you might want yeah. to be like, okay, how... Pretend you're playing Pokemon Go. Mm -hmm. So if anyone has ever yep. played Pokemon Go, you'll see a Pikachu and it is scaled to the size of your house or wherever mm -hmm. your phone is aimed in space. That technology mm -hmm. is now coming to things like furniture or clothing yeah. design. You'll be able to try on clothes. You'll be able to see, does this desk work in my space? Do I have mm -hmm. enough physical space for it? Right. It, it kind mm -hmm. of tracks reality and projects um, what could be. Based on a reference that, point in one place, you can see what it looks like in another place. Exactly. Through, through the filter well of your phone. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Completely. Yeah. Um, and so that's where, you know, we're going to see it right away. I think yeah. Target's already experimenting with it. I've seen it a few different places. I can't wait to virtually try on clothes. That sounds so delightful. <laughs> um, so that's where we're yeah. going to see it in the that's near, good. near future. Yeah. Thanks. I totally understand that because we're, we're talking about things you experience and we're talking about things that are being sold. And of course, the companies who want to sell things are prioritizing that but when you get to things like we're talking about with the holocaust museum where it may brings a, an experience to a, in a more personal way to you in a remote location that expands the number of people that can learn from that and encounter that and have that experience from that museum museum have an impact on their lives so yeah i think uh, a lot yeah. of people talk about vr headsets as something i mean zuckerberg himself says you know the technology is not going to be what he imagines for the next 10 to 15 years so when we talk about digital twins we're talking about something that's happening as we speak, something that people are going to be able to access and use right away that are already being introduced into numerous <laughs> institutions. And soon, you know, probably everywhere you go shopping, that will soon be part of your shopping experience. Appreciate that. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on, Courtney. Um, and everybody, if you're, yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And if anybody listening is interested, please go to inside.com, follow us there every day, follow Courtney and uh, subscribe to Inside XR where you can learn more about digital twins and the related technologies there. See you there. <laughs>Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to Episode 9, Inside Weekly Trends. As you know, we source these stories directly from our website. So if you have a fun subject, topic, anything you want us to talk about, make sure to submit that story at inside.com. Brian, I'll see you next week, and enjoy your weekend. Can't wait for it. We'll see you on inside.com, everybody, or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn in the meantime.